Tonight we're at Take My Wife, Please, part three. Now, here's a plug for the New York trip. How many people are going on the New York trip? I keep asking this because I'm supposed to keep plugging the New York trip. Okay, so this is a plug for the New York trip. Anybody know where this is? Rockefeller Center. Everybody know who this is? Sorry. <laughs> it's Rockefeller Center, but that's Prometheus. Oh, Prometheus bound to the rock. And you want to know why I'm starting today's discussion with a picture of Prometheus, because that doesn't seem right to you, does it? It seems a little bit skewed. Prometheus fine brings fire to mankind, fines brings the alphabet to mankind, but what the heck does Prometheus have to do with a marital couple? Prometheus, no, it's not the ring. <laughs> That's, this, is a, this is a chain, right? Because he's chained to the rock. At Rockefeller Center, right? He's chained to the rock. And, and marriage is a ball and chain. Well done. Not exactly what's <coughs> happening here. Okay, so here's another. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is more contemporary to the text. Another image of Prometheus bound to the rock, and there he is with Atlas. Um, and, but this is where it all starts. It starts with the story of Pandora. We all know the story of Pandora. Pandora who opens the box or the jar and brings all the troubles to mankind because basically, right, women stink. And that's why we have all the troubles in the world because women are awful. And women, oh, does this one have the jar? No, so, okay, whatever. There's, there's one where I had one with a woman with a cosmetic box and you know, opening the box and all the troubles go off in the world. But again, this is Pandora in the center. So, that's Pandora. The story starts with Prometheus. Prometheus, for whatever reason, and we don't know the reason, because as I've told you in other of our talks, we frequently don't get a motivation. Sometimes we do, but frequently we don't get a motivation. But Prometheus decides, for whatever reason, he's gonna play a trick on Zeus. And he decides that he's going to offer Zeus two choices of sacrificial meats. One, the way I describe it, is a tray of meat, and the other is a tray of fat, wrapped around bones. And he goes to Zeus and he says, Zeus, which one do you want? Okay, this is the, the myth as told by me, okay? Which one do you want? And they look, they both look good, but until recently, if anybody remembers going to the butcher, right, um, you always would look for the marbled meat. You'd look for the fattier meat, because the fat is what makes the meat good. And so Zeus takes the fat wrapped bones. And there's nothing there, because there is no meat. It's just fat wrapped bones. Prometheus has tricked Zeus. Zeus is unhappy because of that. He hides away fire from mankind, because Prometheus is a culture hero. 
So he hides fire from mankind. So the score had been Prometheus 1, Zeus nothing. Now the score is Prometheus 1, Zeus 1. Prometheus then steals fire from Zeus and he steals it according to Hesiod, which is the only origin of the myth, but Hesiod tells it twice in two different ways, sort of like we have two different Genesis stories, because that's what you do in the ancient world, you tell the same story different ways. Um, Prometheus steals fire in a hollow reed. And by putting it in a hollow reed, we know what type of fire it is. It's the technological aspect of fire. It's the helpful fire, not the destructive fire. The destructive fire would, of course, consume the reed, this is a fire that can be contained in the reed. So it's the knowledge of how humanity can harness fire. So Prometheus steals that and gives it to mankind. So now the score is Prometheus 2, Zeus 1. Okay. As I said last night to some of you who were here, Keller's first rule of mythology, don't spit in the wind. And Prometheus 2, Zeus 1, is a real big spit in the wind. And Zeus now decides that he is going to even the playing field. And he is going to you know, wipe the floor with Prometheus. And because of that, <coughs> Zeus creates Pandora. So the father of men and gods laughed aloud, and he bade famous Hephaestus, that's the smith god, to make haste and mix earth with water and put into it the voice and strength of, a human, of humankind and fashion sweet a sweet, lovely maiden shape like, like to the immortal goddess in face. Okay? So as we learned in Genesis also, when you're making humanity, you make humanity with dirt, Right, like you did with Adam, and you give it some godlike attribute. Right? In our story, we give Adam the breath of God. Right? And here, Hephaestus is, cra is crafting from clay, and it's supposed to be a gorgeous woman, the, the shape of a mortal goddess. Right? Athena to teach her needlework and weaving of the, um, of the web, and golden Aphrodite to shed grace upon her head, and cruel longing and cares that weary the limbs. So Athena teaches her the crafts. Aphrodite gives her mind-numbing beauty. And he charged Hermes the guide, the slayer of Argus, to put, to put in her a shameless mind and a deceitful nature. And the temperament of a thief. Hermes is the, Hermes is the patron god of thieves, among other things. So he ordered. And they all obeyed Lord Zeus, son of Cronus. Further with, the lame god Hephaestus molded clay in the likeness of a modest maiden, and the, as, as the son of Cronus proposed, as Zeus had commanded. The goddess bright-eyed Athena girded and clothed her, and the divine graces and queenly persuasion put necklaces of gold upon her. And the rich-haired hours crowned her head with spring flowers. And Pallas Athena bedecked her form in all manner of finery. Also the guide, the slayer of Argus, that's Hermes, contrived within her lies and crafty words and a deceitful nature and the will of a loud, at, at the will of loud thundering Zeus. And the herald of the gods put speech in her. And he called this woman Pandora because all those who dwelt on Olympus gave each a gift, a plague to men who eat bread. 
So here you have Pandora in the middle being given different gifts by the pantheon of gods, right? Pan meaning all, adoration, right, means gifts, right? Like the adoration of the Magi or the gifts that the Magi bring, I adore you is that, that I give you gifts. The very Jewish name Isidore, gift of Isis. Theodore, gift of the gods. Theodore is the equivalent of Jonathan or Nathaniel. Right? Both of those names are God's gifts or gifts of God. Potiphar, whom we're going to talk about this Shabbos in one of the places where I'm going, um, Potiphar's wife, uh, that's the gift of the god Ra, Patipara. Right? So these are standard formed names, so to speak. Um, but when he had finished the sheer hopeless snare, the father sent glorious Argus Slayer, the swift messenger of the gods, to take Epimetheus a gift. Okay, what does that mean? Pandora is a snare. She's a booby trap. She's exactly what the trick was that, that Prometheus gave Zeus, right? It looked good on the outside, but there was no meat on the inside. This looks good on the outside, but there's nothing good on the inside. So Zeus gives this woman, the snare to mankind, right, the plague to men who eat bread, to Hermes, the messenger of the god, to bring to Epimetheus. Epimetheus is Prometheus's brother. Prometheus means foresight. Epimetheus means hindsight. To take, he gives it to the swift messenger of the gods to take it to Epimetheus as a gift. And Epimetheus did not remember what Prometheus had said to him, telling him never to take a gift from Olympian Zeus, but to send it back for fear it might prove to be something harmful to men. But he took the gift, and afterwards, when everything was done, he understood. And then it goes on into something else. That's one of the versions. So what happens? Pandora opens the jar. In the Greek, it's jar, and I don't know how the hell it gets to box in English. Okay. Is it Pandora's fault? She has the temperament and the mind of a thief. When you have the temperament and the mind of a thief, and a pocketbook is on the table, what happens to the pocketbook? Right? Somebody opens it, somebody goes through it. Okay. Is it Pandora's fault? Or is it Zeus's fault? Or is it Epimetheus's fault? Or is it really Prometheus's fault? Which is why we started with Prometheus. Think of Pandora as a computer program. When the program doesn't work, it can be the creator of the programmer, right? The coder's fault. The guy could be the fault of the person who wrote the code, the person who put in the code, or the person who was operating it. But whose fault isn't it? The program. Pandora is the program, right? The story starts with Prometheus. We tend to look at these relationships with an, an awful lot of cultural baggage. 
we were all taught that, you know, curiosity kills the cat, that Pandora brings evil to mankind, that Pandora did a bad thing and opened the jar or the box, right? Were you all not taught that, right? But when you read the story, Pandora is doing exactly what Zeus has programmed her to do, and you're told that half a dozen times in each version of the story. So it cannot be, not if you follow me here, right? It cannot be Pandora's fault. We tend to look at things in the way that society, or for whatever reason, history shapes us to look at it, but then when we step back, we need to look at it differently. Now, this is the, the, the slide that I mentioned the other day to somebody. They had a picture of Adam and Eve holding a bunch of broccoli. <laughs> right? I mean, it might be, you know, it might be, it's too little to be arugula. Um, it's kale leaves, something of the sort. But this is clearly another Adam and Eve story. They both have long blonde hair, which is so Mediterranean. Um, and it's very, very difficult to decide, you know, to decide who is who except for the breasts. Um, okay, the same thing happens to a great extent in the story of Adam and Eve. And we talked about that, uh, I think, in our first week in this series, or at some point, when we think of all the problems that happen in the story as being the result of Eve's interaction. But then when you pull the story apart, the one who doesn't look so good is Adam. He's the one who says, the woman that you gave me, she gave it to me to eat. It's Adam who was commanded to eat from all of the trees. Just leave that one alone. And he doesn't eat from all of the trees. He misses the tree of life, stupid boy. And he eats from the wrong tree. The serpent says to Eve, have a bite of the apple. And Eve says, wait a second, I'm not supposed to. And the serpent says, oh, come on, it's fine. And she says, okay, fine. And then she walks over, this cute little naked chick, to Adam and says, here, have a bite. What does he say to her? Okay. If, if even that, right? If even that, the text does not record anything. But there's no discussion. And as I say all the time, and I've said this you know, in different venues this week, the text likes it when you question. The text likes it when you think about things. The text doesn't necessarily like it when you blindly follow. And hence, you know, Noah not being such a great guy. So Adam and Eve, again, we're taught to look at this that Eve is the problem with all of this. Eve's not necessarily the problem with all of this. There is a problem. But you can't blame Eve any more than you can blame Adam. You can blame each of them. You can blame both of them. You can't blame neither of them, that's for sure. Okay. 
Adam and Eve never speak to each other in the text. They speak to each other only through a mediator. They speak to each other through the mediation of God, but we don't recall any, and I don't mean remember, the text doesn't discuss, any conversation between the two of them. Now, converse, it's, you don't think of that. Kind of, that's what I want to talk about today in a larger context is the difference in the way men and women speak. What we have with couples speaking to each other in the biblical text. How couples interact in that way. We don't get a lot of that information in the biblical text. If you break things down to, and I'm, here I'm gonna only talk about the Torah, all right? I'm not talking about the rest of the Bible. I'm just looking at the Torah, the, the Chumash, the five books of Moses, okay? Um, and I worked it all out. So I'm looking at four different categories. Men speaking to men, men speaking to women, women speaking to men, and women speaking to women. I'm leaving out God conversations because conversations with God are by definition different than conversations between and amongst people. Not the least of which is because you can't categorize God into either the man or the, or the, the woman category, so you'd have to have a whole other category of God speaking to men, God speaking to women, God speaking to both men and women. And I could easily do that, but that's not what we're doing tonight. Okay, so the Torah as we know has many more androcentric stories than female-centric ones. Right? So there are many, many more examples of men speaking to men than any other category. Now, I'm talking in real big generalizations. I'm not talking about you know, all the, litty, the, the little nitty, no, little nitty gritty, that's, that's my phrase, the nitty gritty details, right? I'm talking about big, bro broad brushstroke generalizations, okay? Um, and men speaking to men seems to be most often in some way business-oriented and confrontational-oriented. There always seems to be, always again, a generalization, but by far the way it uh, plays out, there seems to be a winner in the story. Now, a winner can be, I want to buy a piece of land from you, right? and I'm winning. It doesn't mean that you're losing. We can both be winners. Or a winner being, I am routing your army, or I'm buying the birthright from you but it seems to be not necessarily family-oriented. It seems to be always some sort of transaction in some way. All right, so that's rather, that's rather interesting. Um, think about, I mean, just, you know, I, I've come up with a couple of examples. They're not men and women, so I'm just trying to decide if I want to do it tonight, but what the hell. Um, you've got Jacob and Laban. You have Joseph and his brothers. You have Pharaoh and Moses. These are all transactional sort of discussions. 
always where you have a clear winner and a clear loser. Again, it's not 100%, but it's by far the majority of them. The Torah, as a rule, doesn't deal with personal expressions of emotion, especially in conversation and especially in dialogue. So when you have something like um, Sarah dying, the text will tell you that Isaac needed comforting and Isaac brings Rebecca into the tent, his mother's tent, because he loved her very much. But that's the omniscient narrator telling you that. That's, and so we, we trust it and that's fine. But we don't get Isaac saying to Rebecca, I love you very much. Now we're sort of evenly divided between men and women here, maybe a little more of one or the other, but I will speak for all the women in the room when I will say it is much nicer for someone to tell us directly that they love us, right? Rather than, oh, you know he loves you or you know she loves you because they did X, Y, and Z or because they told me they did. We would much prefer to hear it ourselves, right? I want affirmation. Yes. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. You're very quiet tonight without Ari. Okay. The, but the text doesn't give us that, so that can't count as part of the conversation. So when you talk about um, Abraham and Sarah, this is a really Christian, ah, I love it, um, picture of Abraham and the angels, and then our nice little banquet that's made for them. You see in here you've got like, like a lamb. And there's Sarah dressed very much like Mother Superior. I lost my, there it is, in, isn't it like a little wimple? In her tent from the side. So Abraham speaks with Sarah only three times. You wouldn't have thought that because there are all these stories about the two of them. But when you actually look at the dialogue, they speak three times. The first is the wife-sister story, which we talked about, I guess, two weeks ago. The second is the Hagar story that we talked about last week, when he says to her, deal with her as you think right. And the third is when <laughs> the angels show up and he, and he says to her, Go make food. Okay, they're the only times that Abraham, it's hysterical to me, that Abraham speaks directly to Sarah in the text. Okay, it seems that you have a loving relationship. The, t the story presents a loving relationship, but it presents no dialogue. Now that's not a value statement, right? It doesn't mean that Abraham is one of these people that just sit, comes home from work, sits down and says nothing, you know, with his face in the newspaper, 
right? That's not what it means. And she's saying, oh, honey, please tell me what you're thinking. Just tell me what you're thinking. Really, really, what's on your mind, okay? I'm not, we all know those patterns. I'm not saying that's what's happening at all. It's not important to the text. These interpersonal relationships of sorts that we, we look for in the Bible, we want to find in the Bible, we want to know, and I use this as my example time and again, we want to know what Sarah felt like when Abraham took the son up the mountain to sacrifice him to God. We want to know what type of mother that is that'll let her 37-year-old son go, I'm sorry, it's just humorous when I say it that way, go, it's hysterical, go with the father to be sacrificed. We want to know what that is, but the text doesn't tell us because it's not important. These sorts of personal interactions that we really, really want, text doesn't care about. Okay, so this is, this is Rebecca. It's like, who the hell is that? <laughs> it's like, okay, who's next on my list? Okay, um, this is Rebecca at the well with Domestic Eliezer. We'll talk about them more next week, and we talked about them a little bit last week, if I recall, yes, um, and we'll talk about them again next week um, as well. I mean, Rebecca and um, Eliezer have conversation, right? Uh, Rebecca has a lot of speaking parts in the Bible. She actually has more speaking parts than Isaac does. Right, so if you were paying on equity scale, I'm in California, I have to make California analogies. Right? If you're paying on equity scale, Rebecca is getting paid more than Isaac is. Right? Because I think it's, it's, not, only, it's not only screen time, it's, it's word time as well, at least from what I've been told. Right? She is spoken to more than any other woman in the biblical, te biblical text. Okay? But... Isaac never speaks directly to Rebecca. There is no recounted dialogue or even statements from him to her. We know he loved her because the omniscient narrator tells us so, but we don't hear it. The whole marriage situation is worked out with Eliezer and Laban and Rebecca. Rebecca's pretty amazing. That didn't get online, right? Um, she's pretty amazing in that she does a man's job. She's the only shepherdess in the biblical text. Think about it. Shepherding is boy's work. She's shepherding. She is an amazing woman. When Laban makes this agreement to let her marry her cousin or whatever, I'm never good with the family trees because cousins and all of these relations, you know, how many removed or whatever, doesn't work for me unless I have a chart in front of my face. 
She gets a say in it. She gets a say in whether or not she's going to marry Isaac. And she's the one who says, no, I'm ready, I'll go now. And goes to meet him. He falls in love with her at first sight. Right? Um, and you see him off in the background. Where's my pointer? I'm very discombobulated today. Right? He's off in the background looking, and here's Rebecca with Eliezer. And she's got lots of camels, which is an anachronism, as I keep telling you. Um, but it's an anachronism of great wealth, right? Because you don't have camels at this period of time anywhere in the ancient Near East. Camels, you know, even wild camels. And everybody is traveling on either onagers or donkeys. Right? Think about the Messiah coming into Jerusalem. It's going to be on a donkey. Right? Horses are also late and horses are military. And camels don't come in as anything until at the earliest, the ninth century. But then they're an oddity, like, oh, look, in a zoo, there's this strange animal. What is that? But it's not until well established into the seventh century that you have any idea of the frequency of use of camels as beasts of burden or of anything. At this point, where this gets retrojected, they're using uh, donkeys and onagers. Right? But uh, Isaac sees her from afar as she's coming up with all of this wealth, and he loves her very much, we are told, by the narrative voice. But we don't hear that from her, uh, from him, rather. Okay, so both Jacob and Eliezer speak with her, and Rebecca and Eliezer, <laughs> Rebecca and Eliezer, uh, have a real conversation, which is also unusual in the text. Because a real conversation means I speak, you speak, I speak, you speak, right? It's a back and forth. And Eliezer and Rebecca have a conversation, and you have virtually no back and forth male-female conversations. Those are, they're very, very rare. Right? She has none with her husband, but she has with her husband's servants. Okay, so now this is Rebecca and Jacob and Esau and Isaac. Right? You got Isaac, that unfortunate-looking woman who could, I'm sure somebody would know a doctor that could help her. Um, <laughs> I'm in Orange County, after all, right? Um, that was funny to me. That's Rebecca, and these are the two sons, right? This would be, obviously, Jacob, and this would be Esau, because he's got that little hairy arm thing going there. Um, the werewolf, Jacob S. Werewolf. Uh, Rebecca and Jacob also interact a lot but not Isaac, not the marital couple. Rebecca really plans out what's going to happen and how the son is going to get the birthright. What's marvelously interesting, and I always say I don't talk about the Mephorshim and you know, the, the traditional commentaries unless I do, and this is one of the instances where I'm going to, Rebecca doesn't come out so nice in the traditional commentaries. 
because Rebecca perpetrates this great uh, trick to get Jacob the blessing, right? For those of us who don't know the story, Esau is the firstborn son. Jacob, they're twins. Jacob is the secondborn son. By the rules of primogenitry, Esau should get the birthright and Esau should get the blessing, the father's blessing. Jacob tricks Esau out of the blessing with the famous pile of beans or porridge of lentils, however you want to translate that. Esau's really hungry and Jacob's like, oh look, here's this really, really nice smelling soup. Ooh, soup, 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 soup. And Esau's like, I'm hungry. And Jacob's going, soup, 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 soup. What are you going to give me for the soup? Oh, you want the birthright? Fine. And, and, Jake, and Esau sells off his birthright to Jacob. And I've told you this before. I don't remember when. But in, I know when it was, it was in our, in, I think on our second class on this, when in literature you have ultimogenitry. In legal texts, you have primogenitry, right? The, fur, the oldest one inherits. In literature, you have ultimogenitry, usually the youngest, right? The ultimate inherits, because otherwise, as my professor would say, it wasn't worthy of saga. If it's going to go along the natural line, why bother to talk about it? And you have it across the board. You have it in those succession myths we talked about last week. You have it in something like this. It's usually the youngest or one of the youngers. So Jacob gets the birthright, but then he wants the blessing. And Isaac's blind. And Rebecca says, here, dress like your brother. Here is some skin. Put it on your arm so that when your father touches you, you'll feel all hairy like your brother and you'll smell like your brother, etc. And Isaac says, the arm is the arm of Esau, but the voice is the voice of Jacob, but he gets the blessing anyway. It's important for the storyline because otherwise we would be the children of Esau and we're the children of Jacob. Right? And Jacob becomes Israel, and we're B'nai Israel, and that's all fine and good. But Rebecca <coughs> perpetrated a great trick, a great stunt on Jacob. We're the children of Jacob, and on her husband. You don't trick your husband. Okay? You don't trick your husband. In the story of Purim that we're going to do next Tuesday night, for those of us who are following around what we're doing when, the reason that Vashti gets thrown out of Ahasuerus's court is because she disobeyed a direct request of the king. And all the king's horsemen and all the king's men say, this is a Humpty, we have to make sure it doesn't get broken. Right? Basically say, that was a joke that I thought was funny. Um, basically saying, if Vashti can get away with disobeying her husband, so too can every other woman in the kingdom so we've got to rein in Vashti 
so that the rest of the Persian wives will fall in line. And that's the pericope we're going to do next week. So, so remember in advance when we start asking about that. So Rebecca, who has more speaking lines than the other women in the text, has these great speaking lines with her son. Sarah doesn't really talk to Isaac, right? Has all these speaking lines with her son, with the father of our nation, has no, no speaking lines with her husband, has no marital relationship that gets recorded in that regard in the text. But we are told by the omniscient narrator that he loved her very much. Okay, so now this is Mrs. Potiphar and Joseph. <sighs> Woohoo! Okay, and I know I, I, I know Mrs. Potiphar and Joseph is what I said, okay? And it's still Mrs. Potiphar and Joseph. And this is, and I love it, I love it. We've always got the little pet animals in a lot of these pictures. <laughs> because clearly they had pets, and clearly they had rugs, because that's what you need in Egypt. You need rugs and the curtains to keep it nice and toasty, because that's what you need in Egypt. Um, and we're gonna be, I, I do believe that we're doing her this Shabbos, wherever I am in this Shabbos. Uh, so we're not gonna go into great detail on this now, but Joseph and Ashet Potiphar, Potiphar's wife, they, they talk. He talks to her. She talks to him. He talks to her. Oh, are you going to tell me where I'm doing it? <laughs> are you going to tell me where I'm doing it? Um, sorry. So they have a conversation. They're not a marital couple. Mrs. Potiphar, Potiphar's wife, I call her Mrs. Potiphar because it's just easier than calling a Potiphar's wife. Mrs. Potiphar says a hell of a lot, heck of a lot to her husband but her husband doesn't speak to her. She has lots of speaking parts, but he doesn't speak to her. It's, he takes what she says seriously. He believes what she has to say. The fact that he's not speaking to her is not a degradation at all. It's that it's not important because who gives a hoot and a good gosh darn what he says to her. What we care about is what she says to him, which is why that's what's recorded for us. We hear and we see, excuse me, what's said to him by her. Okay, now this is Moses and Sapporo. Sapporo, see those camels again in the back? Love those camels. Um, and they just, I mean, come on, look at those. They just look so sexy, okay? Um, Moses and Sapporo don't talk. Moses never speaks to Sapporo. He rescues her from the men who make it difficult for her to get the water, to water the, I was gonna say crops, but I meant flocks. He rescues her. She goes running home, gets home quicker than usual. Her father says, hey, why are you home so early? She says, we're so home so early because someone helped us. 
and we're going to be talking about Sephora in greater detail on that last Saturday at University Synagogue, for those of us who care. We'll be doing the Women of Exodus, because it, it's just called Women of the Bible, so I'm telling you which ones we're doing, because I made a promise that that's what I was going to do. The, so they have no conversation. However, Sephora, and this is our last discussion for tonight, Sephora does some pretty, pretty impressive and fancy stuff when it comes to Moses without speaking. <sighs> Brooklyn Museum, flint knives. I just, wanted you, I just needed you to see what flint knives looked like when I read this pericope to you, because you know, they're sharp, but really? Okay, and the Lord, this is Exodus chapter four, and the Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the marvels that I have put within your power. I, however, will stiffen, bad translation, his heart, so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord of Israel, go down, Moses, way down to Egypt land. Tell old Pharaoh. Okay, so. Moses is now given the directive by God to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go, right? Fine. Next verse. At a night encampment on the way, the Lord encountered him, who the hell him is, we don't know, and sought to kill him, who the hell him is, we don't know. So Zipporah took a flint knife and cut off her son's foreskin and touched it to his we don't know who his is, legs, we don't know what legs are, saying, you are truly a bridegroom of blood to me, we don't know what a bridegroom of blood is, and when he let him alone, he, that he is God, let him, we don't know who him is, alone, she added, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. And then that little desert interlude ends, and we go back to the go down Moses, way down to Egypt land, tell old Pharaoh, let my people go part of the story. Okay, we discussed, some of us discussed this last Shabbos, and some of us have been thinking a lot about it, okay? But this, I mean, I put this here because I just love this piece of text, but also, right, Zipporah and Moses don't have conversation. They clearly have interaction, but that was a joke. But they don't have conversation. It's really amazing when you think about it that of all the back and forth in the biblical text, of all the conversations that you have recounted in the Bible, and there are many, your marital couples aren't really speaking. Go make cakes. Your marital couples that are shown in such a positive light in so many ways, are not shown as having what we consider such an essential part of a relationship, which is communication. That's not necessary within the construct of the text. The marital couples are not important for their relationship. We want to look into the text for relationships. 
we want to look into the text for the role of this or the role of that or how this works or how parents interact with children. We don't have this. It's not that that wasn't important in the real world of the Bible. It, I'm sure it was. But it's not important within the story of the Bible because the story of the Bible is the story of God and God's people. And the story of the relationships is the story of the Midrash. And the Midrash takes the meat of the biblical text and makes it into the stew that we want rather than just leaving it as that pile of meat on the tray of Prometheus. Thank you. Now, we got three questions. We got one, you have one, right? You're one, you're two, you're three, you're four, you're five, you're six. Now you've got to remember your numbers. We do, correct. We don't have any, we have no recording of that within the text. So why is she blamed, other than the fact that she's a woman and she's blamed? Well, because she, I mean, in, the serpent says to her, eat, and she says, we're told not to. So the, the text already acknowledges that she has some knowledge of what she is or isn't supposed to do. Now, you want to get pedantic about it, she gets it wrong. So what God says to Adam, God says to Adam, A, uppercase, and Eve reports, God said, A, lowercase prime, but it's still A, right? So the, 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 the text does recount that she knew there was some imper negative imperative. She eats. Adam then eats because she brings it to him. What's interesting, and a discussion for a different time altogether, is that we basically drop that story from our liturgy, from our liturgy, from our, well, we, we don't have it in our liturgy at all, and we drop it from our textual memory. Okay, we don't, we don't go back to that story. We don't say, you know, Adam, Eve, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That story sort of ends there, and it doesn't get recounted again. Eve gets recounted again in the New Testament in a very negative way, right? And a lot of it comes in from that as well, okay? Who was two? You see, you have to remember your numbers. Well, <laughs> Okay, so you're supposed to remember numbers. Uh, in biblical times, what was the big deal about a birthright? In biblical times, what was the big deal about a birthright? Okay, the birthright means the birthright means your inheritance portion. If you your inheritance portion is number, you know, you get the first son gets right, Pishnayim. That's the birthright. Right? What's the big you know, it's it's like you know, it's like England. Right? The the first son the gets the firstborn gets everything. The first son, I was gonna say the first son gets the first, not the firstborn. Well now it's the firstborn. But you know, how many of us watch Down Abbey? 
How many of us remember the first season when there was all this trouble because Lady Mary wasn't married and whether or not Lady Mary was going to be able to inherit because of blah, 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 right? It's the first son. That's what's going on. Okay? So that's, that's what's going on within the context of the text. The, the, the birthright is that piece of paper. Now, I maintain, and again, it's a discussion for another time, that the Bahor is not that the, the one of the birthright doesn't necessarily have to be the firstborn, but it's the one that's chosen to be the one, you know, the designated heir, just like the Atara, the mother is going to have the designated heir. But that's a that's a technical linguistic conversation. Okay, who was three? No, wait, you were not three. You were like six or seven. Bridegroom, is there any way that that... No, that one actually means, the Chatan actually means related by marriage. There is one place in the text where Chatan can actually mean daughter-in-law. Right? The Chatan is related by marriage. I was thinking if it, if it were a capital and it was just inadvertently written as a lower case, she could be referring to God as a bridegroom of blood to her. In the what do sense, you mean? Uh, a relationship between her and God. Uh, that God is a truly a bridegroom of blood to her, and he's the bridegroom of blood to her because of the circumcision, because she circumcised her son. Right. But the chatan means... Okay, so the word is chatan. Chatan, right. Chatan means, which means a, rel a relation by marriage of blood. It's a very, very bizarre pericope. And could it have at all been meant to refer to God? No. Support to I can I can give you a parallel. So those of us who can, right? Okay. So now now everybody's happy. <laughs> okay. See how that works. And one of let's want to do something cool. Should we do something cool? Let's see what it says in the Dead Sea texts. Dead Sea It doesn't exist in any of the Dead Sea manuscripts. That pericope doesn't exist in any of the Dead Sea What's manuscripts. Pericope. Yeah, what is it? What does that mean? It's an English word. It means chunk of text. Okay. Okay. Thank you. It's spelled pericope. So I'm sure you've seen it written, but you don't normally speak it. Right? Pericope, pericope. If you were Christian, you would, because it means a chunk of biblical text. Right? It's like it's, it's a liturgical pericope, but we a parasha. Uh -huh. right? It's a pericope. Okay, so um, no, there's absolutely, there's absolutely um, no question about what's going on here. Except okay. Who, 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 Again, except who is who? Yeah. Where the hell is my PowerPoint? Okay. All right. So who was four? You were four. Okay. If this is too far off topic, let me know. It's okay. You made <sighs> this. Delightful comment that the delightful. text, yes, delightful. The, the text doesn't like it when somebody, the text text likes it when someone, um, when someone's in God's face, when someone questions, yeah, when someone it's questions, when, when they struggle question. with it, the text doesn't like it, doesn't like it when someone just accepts. Can you, blindly obeys, 
Yeah. You want uh, me to? You want me to give you examples? No, no. I want you to uh, um, uh, apply this to God's telling Abraham, "I'm going to be your God. Go to go to the promised land." Abraham, no, 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 Abraham, Abraham doesn't look so good because if you remember, that was our first. That was our first Wednesday together, right? It's it's Lecha starts. You, God says, "Pack your bags," right? And, 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 you know, and, and pack up all your cares and woe, you know, here I go, singing bye-bye, whatever the hell that song is, right? Pack, your, pack up that sort of, pack up your old kid, the kid bag, right? And go, he goes, then there's a famine in the land, and what does he do? He goes into that first wife-sister story where he looks like an idiot because he's pimping out his wife, yeah. right? And if you remember, this was already a problem for the ancients, that was our first Wednesday, Right? There was already a problem for the ancients because the Dead Sea texts kosher and all up and make it that God's saying, no, 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 take my wife, it's okay. Abraham doesn't come out looking so good in these stories. Now, sometimes he does when he says to God, what do you mean you're going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Sometimes he doesn't look so good. But when he's, when he's being active, and that seems to be the case the majority of the time. Not 100%, because nothing in the Bible is 100%. But it seems to be the case of the majority of the time when someone is being active, it's better than then when they're not being active. Now you're going to turn around and say to me, but what about Pharaoh? He's being active against the Israelites. Okay, fine. But for the most part, in these interactions, the people who are doing things that ultimately in the narrative eye is moving the story along in an active way, <coughs> it looks better. Sarah needs a son. She is Akara, she has not had a child, she needs a son. What is Abraham doing to give her a son? Nothing. She does it by, give, by giving her handmaid to him so that she will be built up to her. The text likes it, it seems, when people take the situation in hand and move it to the next place. Okay, and we'll look at that whenever I look at the Judah and Tamar story, right? Because it's Judah who's doing nothing and it's Tamar who's doing everything. Okay, who was five? Rita, you were five. Oh. I'm not supposed to remember this. <laughs> um, That's why I gave you all numbers. What's the relationship between these stories and the uh, Persephone and uh, the story that you started? And Prometheus? Yeah. The reason that I started with Prometheus and Pandora yeah. was because we have, it's always easier for, I think, for the audiences to when you're going to disabuse people of assumptions start with greek because then everybody gets the i gets onto the programmatic idea that things are different in our head than what they are in the text right and then once we establish that then we can go into the bible and start looking at the bible differently and pandora is a good place to show you that we think that women are bad and they are, but there's another way of looking at it. 
And we think that it's Eve's fault, and it is, but there's another way of looking at it. And we think that these relationships are relationships. But there's another way of looking at it. So that's that connection. Okay, you said that the, uh, the blessing of the father involved inheritance. Is that correct? Yes. Okay, that's what it means. I mean, you get your father's blessing, you get his but they, But it's, no, inheritance doesn't have to mean physical things. Because, because Jacob left, right? He left and then he came indentured. Well, he left. He left, and he went to other parts of the yeah. family. But an inheritance can be an inherited blessing. It okay. doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be what's in the safety deposit box. It can be the ethical will. Right. The blessing is really the most important thing. Right. It's why parents bless children. It's why the priest bless the nation. It's tomorrow night for anybody who's coming to TBI, right? Blessings and curses, we're gonna do all of that stuff, right? It, the blessing is more important than the physicality. All right, good night, thank you.